Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Episode 8, 16, New Girlfriend, New Guardian. Sue B. discovered some infractions with my inheritance, but it was all hearsay to me, and I didn't understand a word of it, nor did I care. The whole notion of money and finances were elusive to me, And the only thing I knew was that I had money in the bank and every month I was given a lump sum. Sue B. handled the issue by having a private word with Andy and then appointing herself my new financial guardian. I was cool with that because Sue B. and I got along fabulously and my life was obviously changing. All in all, my time with Andy had not turned out so badly, and he did deserve a lot of credit for stepping up when no one else would, could, or did. But once again, the cast of characters was revolving, and my days with Andy had finally come to an end. Instead of moving in with Sue B., Martha and I got our first apartment together. It was in a sprawled-out complex in one of the most conventional places I had ever lived. There was nothing hippie about it except for the vintage red brocade couch that I bought as my first adult purchase. It stood out because it didn't belong in this cookie-cutter apartment and I should have paid more attention to how sad and lonely it looked there. At the age of 16, I contrarily became a housewife, and every morning I would make Martha a lunch before she headed out to her job with the State Highway Department. As a couple, Our pastimes included shopping at service merchandise and hanging out with Martha's friends. I bought Martha all the household furnishings that she liked, which I thought were very conservative for a lesbian. I equated queer with counterculture and counterculture with unconventional, but I was learning otherwise. Except we did have a waterbed. It was fun for a while, this new life, this new decor, and this strange paradox of living a straightish life with a lesbian. It wasn't what I expected, but it was a pleasant change of pace for now. Martha's friends were for the most part a horrid crowd. not the avant-garde's that I had hoped for. They fell into two categories, butch 
and femme, and they came with a leader, a vile, sedentary woman named Melanie. She was an in-your-face queer with her pernicious tongue and rotund body. She saw herself as the queen, and she wanted Martha to be her king. She had no good qualities that I could see, and her evil was right up there with my mother's. She needed to control and dominate everyone around her, and much to my surprise, she had a vice grip hold on Martha. Martha seemed to feed off her power, and it was under the influence of Melanie and alcohol that I realized how easily manipulated Martha could be. She wasn't the big, strong dyke that I thought she was. We would spend hours with Melanie and her minions, playing spades and drinking hard liquor. I would mostly stay quiet, enduring all the inside jokes that were meant to keep me out. This was their world, and I wasn't a real queer anyway. As the evening progressed, one drink after the other, Martha would get hammered. The drunker she got, the more Melanie gleamed with a depraved delight. She knew something about Martha that I didn't. Martha was insanely jealous. Melanie would poke at Martha's demons by saying rude things to me like, You miss having a cock in you, don't you? Something I could very well hear my mother saying. Or, she would say, You guys look like you'd make a great couple. Directing this comment to whoever happened to be sitting next to me, which would sometimes be Melanie's own girlfriend, coincidentally, the waitress from Sambo's who tried to kiss me the night I met Martha. I learned pretty quickly to keep my eyes on the table. I didn't dare get caught looking at anyone because the way Martha dealt with her insecurities was to beat the hell out of me. One of our early fights was a carbon copy of a beating that I saw my dad give to my mom. Martha was drunk, and her face was ugly and twisted with unfounded suspicions. She started taunting me with verbal accusations, most of them so heinous and ridiculous that if I didn't fear for my life, I would have laughed out loud. She accused me of sleeping with, of all people, Andy, as if she didn't even hear her own ridiculous words. But that's how insane she was, and I couldn't argue with that kind of crazy. So on this night, when the verbal turned physical, I left my body and watched from a higher plane as my mother's past came tumbling down upon me. Martha threw me to the ground and sat straddled on top of me just like my father had done to my mother. She bolted my wrists to the ground and spit in my face. 
She called me a whore and a slut and asked me if I liked to have big black cock inside my pussy. She grabbed the telephone and wrapped the cord around my neck. All the bravado and self-esteem that I had built up over the years cracked and crumbled as Martha's fist pounded into my face. And this is when I became a stereotype. Because I didn't leave. I was the bruised and embarrassed girl who hides the truth because the makeup sex and the acts of forgiveness are so intense and so seductive that this incident had to be a fluke, a one-time deal. It will never happen again. It couldn't because it was a mistake. But it wasn't a mistake, and it happened all the time. The first of many final straws occurred on a day when I came home to find Martha kissing another girl. They were sitting on bar stools side by side when I walked in and saw them. Bar stools that we bought together at service merchandise. There was no time for conversation or explanation, and the betrayal and the hypocrisy of what I was seeing fueled the adrenaline that began pumping through my body. I grabbed the unknown woman by her long, red, curly hair and dragged her to the front door. And while she lay on the ground, I kicked her in the ass, and in a tone reminiscent of my mother, I told her not to come around here no more. I was elated by my physical prowess and deflated by Martha's audacity. She was doing what she always accused me of, and of all things, in the fucking house that I was paying for. I kicked her out, but not for long, because I had a plan. Nineteen seventy-nine, a winter in Boston. My thinking was that if we got away from all the bad lesbians, our life together would have a fighting chance in hell. So I talked Martha into moving to Boston with me. We loaded up whatever belongings we could fit into her brand new baby blue Grand Prix and headed north. We made a pit stop in Cleveland to visit a man that I had not seen since I was a child. 
my father, Jim Kerr. We had lunch with Jim in his small box house, which I thought rather clean for a single man who lived by himself. He had married once again after my mother, but his second wife committed suicide by sitting alone in her car with the garage door shut and the motor running. My father was still a working class guy, but now he owned a bar and drove a motorcycle. He was skinny and his hair was styled in a medium-sized afro. The words love and hate were still tattooed on his knuckles, but were faded by a tan that must have come from long hours on the bike. I mistakenly assumed that a white guy with an afro would be cool, but I was wrong. He was crafty in disguising his disgust, but you could feel it overpowering the room, like a deadly gas draining the life out of this reunion. The small talk was laborious, and I wasn't sure if his loathing was due to Martha or the badly done new wave slash punk fashion that I was trying so desperately to pull off. Sandwiched, between the layers of this uneasy lunch was an odd slice of parental guilt. Jim showed me a long list with at least 20 plus addresses of all the places that I had lived while we traveled around in the bus. He said that he spent years trying to track us down, but every time he got close, we would split. I didn't ask him directly why he was looking for us, but I got the sense that he wanted to take custody. But after today, I was glad that he didn't. Martha and I didn't linger around Cleveland. The facts were obvious. Jim and I were strangers, just like my siblings and me. But it didn't hurt because it just was. I could tell that my dad no longer wanted to be my father and I had been without one for so long that it didn't really matter. Just seeing my reflection in someone else's face was good enough for me. Once in Boston, Martha and I rented a studio apartment on Beacon Hill. The cobblestones, the dark tightness, and the sense of ghostly Brahmins walking past me undetected in top hats and walking canes enamored me. The wrought iron seemed to hold the secrets of the past, both eerie and beautiful, and I knew I was somewhere special. For Martha, it was a nightmare. She was far too paranoid and she thought everyone was looking at her. I told her that you don't stand out in the city and that's what makes it so great. There are too many people and nobody cares. But Martha felt like she had Arkansas written all over her, which she did, but so what? It took a lot of chutzpah to navigate this new environment and Martha didn't have any. She called her parents and they bought her a plane ticket home. I didn't last long either. Not out of paranoia, out of love. Martha and I weren't done, and the powerful compulsion to be together sent me back home, but only for a minute. 
Being with Martha was like living in a warm cocoon of isolation. It was hard to step out of an environment where just the smell of her kept me in a daze. And to watch her blow dry her mound of bush was far more enticing than the noise and rambunctiousness of the city. But she knew how to ruin it, and she could turn the sexiest of moments into an ambush of condemnations, crazy jealousies, and physical abuse. Lucky for me, I had options. Somewhere near my 17th birthday, in a state of running, I took a Greyhound bus back up to Boston, where I planned to live for good this time. My soul was sick and tired of being shit upon, and my identity had become shards of insecurity. I was like a crocus trying to blossom in the springtime, but Martha's foot kept crushing me back into the ground. On the bus ride to Boston, the universe rewarded my survival instincts by presenting me with a bronzed Italian man who spoke not one word of English, but only, voluptuously, the primal language of love. For three days straight, we aggravated the road-worn patrons of Greyhound with the messy slurping sounds of an intimate acquaintance. Typical of my age, or just the person that I was, I couldn't be bothered with the harumphs of displeasure coming from the other passengers. I had only one focus, an afternoon delight. Once in Cambridge, and after a thorough search of the classifieds, I found an artist fellow who was advertising a room for rent on Green Street in Central Square. He was lukewarm about renting to an emancipated minor, but in the end, he took on the challenge. One block away from his apartment was an alternative high school, which thrilled Sue B and left me tepid. But she gave me an ultimatum, no school, no money. The location of the school in relation to my apartment was far too opportune for something called the open school. And on most days, I took those words literally. I'd walk in, get noticed, and walk right back out. The staff was under the impression that given the opportunity, teenagers would take command of their schooling and teach themselves. I concurred wholeheartedly and spent my days at Cheapo Records and the head shops on Massachusetts Avenue. But it's not like I wasn't getting an education. My roommate turned me on to Afghani weed, German quaaludes, and some very avant-garde from Europe. I was surrounded by a whole new crowd of people who reminded me of the hippies in Fayetteville, but they were far less community-oriented and more about furthering their art. For one moment, I forgot about Martha and developed a crush on a woman who seemed like a lesbian, but I couldn't tell. Her demeanor was tough and callous, and she dressed in army green. I did all my best flirting, but it got me nowhere. 
My infatuation was not reciprocated, and that made me feel lonely. It only served to remind me that there was a woman out there who loved me, and I missed her. So I did what all stupid people do. I left my future and went slogging back to my past. I made two good decisions when I got back to Arkansas. I got my own apartment without Martha, and I went back to school. As I was inching ever so closely to the age of 18, Sue B's legal responsibilities were almost over. Her last parting request, or more of a begging, was that I do something, anything with my life, while I still had some money left. I chose beauty school because I loved gay men. Thank you.